Sugar was first exported from the Eastern Caribbean in 1641, so John must have been involved from the very early stages. Welcome to 100 Years, 100 Objects, stories from the collections of Lancaster City Museums. My name is Rachel Roberts, Collections Registrar at Lancaster City Museums. 2023 marks 100 years of our museums and collections, and we're celebrating by examining 100 intriguing objects that help tell the story of Lancaster, Morecambe and the surrounding area. Today's object takes us into the life of one of Lancaster's early merchants. A man who made his fortune as a sugar dealer, but who didn't leave as many documents or portraits behind as some of the other better-known merchants. Today's object is a merchant token issued by John Lawson. The token itself is quite small not much bigger than a modern five-pence piece. On one side is a design of a horse, with a standard and flag across its shoulder. Around the edge are star shapes and dots, and the letters IN, followed by the word Lancaster, heavily worn away. On the other side is a design made up of the initials L, I and M, surrounded by star shapes and dots, and around the outside the words John Lawson are just legible. There are quite a few tokens in the museum collection, as they were often issued by merchants as a sort of stand-in currency during periods when small change was scarce, making everyday low-value transactions difficult. We do not have an exact date for the issue of this token, but John Lawson lived from around 1624 to 1689, and as such we know it's probably one of the earliest tokens in the collection. The majority of the other tokens are from the 18th century, which was the heyday of merchant tokens. Although we do know that other Lancaster merchants like William Proctor and John Greenwood were also producing tokens in the 17th century. John Lawson's name appears on several objects from Lancaster's past, including maps, where his large estate on what is now St Leonard's Gate can be seen, tokens like this one, and a large and imposing tombstone. However, the Lawson family are not as well known as some of the later merchants and landed families from Lancaster's past, like the Daltons, Rawlinsons or Satterthwaites. We spoke to Anne Morgan, to find out a little bit more about the man behind the name. John is variously described uh, in a number of different places as a grocer, sugar house and still owner and a colonial merchant. On the 1684 map of Lancaster that was discovered in 1952 and it was Kenneth Docton that worked on that. On that, John Lawson's clearly identified as the owner of a sugar house, a still, a warehouse at 15 St Leonard Street. Sugar was first exported from the Eastern Caribbean in 1641. So if we're talking about this period, John must have been involved from the very early stages of exporting of sugar. So he might have had links with the plantations in South America, or he might have had links with the Eastern Caribbean. We're not sure. And sugar houses then process raw brown sugar uh, into white sugar to be sold in the form of cones, or they might have been loaves but they distilled rum as well from the molasses, which was a byproduct of the sugar refining process. And it's clear that John did both, because he had a still. And we know from William Stout's autobiography that some of the sugar that came into Lancaster was actually exported from Lancaster. And I'll quote from him, he says, not above one-fourth of the sugar imported to Lancaster was consumed in Lancaster. 
He records that half of the sugar imported was re-exported in 1709, for example, to Holland, Germany and the Northern Kingdoms. So the Lawson family, with this early start in the trade, must have been involved in not just importing, but also exporting sugar as well. So we, we've said that he clearly had established links with sugar plantations on which enslaved people were working. He would have brought it by ship into his sugar house through the wharf that he built on the river. The map that I've just talked about earlier says that they owned 15 and 17 St Leonard Street. But the map also shows that he owned a property at Nine Pudding Lane, which is now Cheapside. And then in 1680, he was given permission to erect a stone bridge over the mill dam from his garden at number 17, St Leonard Street. And that was a green area at that stage of the city. And he was permitted then to erect a wharf adjacent to it, over which he brought his goods that he was importing. It was 20 yards long, quite long, really, for this day. And in order to get permission, he also granted freemen the use of it. But they had to pay him four pence a tonne for goods that they brought over his bridge <laughs> into into the city. So uh, he's very much part of this merchant grouping within the city. Another important part of John Lawson's life was his religion, and Anne told us how, as an adult, John became a part of the Religious Society of Friends, otherwise known as Quakers, and how his new beliefs led him to clashes with the law. In 1652, John Lawson was converted to Quakerism by George Fox. He was the founder of the Quaker Church. John rescued Fox from the congregation of St Mary's Church. They were stoning Fox down Church Street because he'd been speaking against the need to have a priest intercede between the congregation and God. Fox believes that you don't need that. You can speak directly to God. For some reason, we don't know why, John Dawson thought this was wrong and he took Fox into his home. And Fox was a great talker, so... By the end of the day, he had converted John to his way of being. And John became a really devout Quaker. He became what we call a follower and a traveller. And he travelled around Britain preaching this belief. And he spoke in what George Fox called steeple houses, which was his name for churches. And he was speaking out against priests. That same year, 1652, he was set in the stocks in Malpas in Cheshire for four hours. And then he was imprisoned in the county jail in West Horton near Bolton for 23 weeks for speaking against priests. He actually responded to the accusations against him. He was articulate and he wrote a tract and that was printed for him by Judge Fell of Swarthmore Hall. He was fined £20, the equivalent of £4,115 today in Lancaster for again speaking in the steeple house and then he didn't pay the fine. So he spent a year in prison in the castle, supported by his fellow Quakers, who provided food, candles and blankets to him whilst he was there. And then again in 1660, he's taken to the castle for refusing to swear an oath. Quakers don't swear an oath. We've never sworn an oath because we say that our word is our word. Then friends would have said our yea is our yea, our nay is our nay. In 1668, he was dismissed from the office of bailiff of the customs for refusing to take the oath again. Now, today, we can affirm in court. And it's interesting that that's been possible since 1695. So not long after John was being imprisoned for not swearing oaths, the Quaker Act enabled friends to actually affirm rather than swear. John Lawson died in 1689 and left his money to his sons, who continued to import and export goods. 
John's sons, Robert the Elder and Joshua, along with John's daughters and sons-in-law, they inherited wealth in 1689. And Robert is interesting because he chose to invest in the South Sea Company, experiencing substantial losses, I have to say, in 1721, when the South Sea bubble burst. And that was the war with Spain and seizing of company property and corruption amongst the board of directors and so on, including government cabinet ministers. And that led to the stock collapsing. Nevertheless, that company trafficked 41,000 enslaved people during its existence. And Robert, he managed to avoid bankruptcy. It was quite canny because he invested his money in land all over Lancashire. And then between 1729 and 1738, Robert, with his youngest son, Robert the Younger, they sent five vessels to Barbados. The Sarah traded with Barbados in 1731. It shipped out a huge array of goods. I'll just list them for you. Beef, butter. A lot of this was picked up in Ireland on the way across. Sundry oats, felt hats, feathers, men's shoes, tallow candles, pewter, snuff, northern cottons, cordage, ropes and rigging for ships, potatoes, cheese, nuts and grunts, which I think are probably for ale all to be sold to plantation owners. So it's everything they would need, really. And the ship then brings back sugar, cotton, mahogany, tobacco, amongst other goods. Now, Robert's partner was a, a man called Isaac Moss, and he's a Quaker hosier from Manchester. And it's thought that this link gave the Lawsons access to Lancashire cotton goods that they could export. John's other sons, Joshua and John, also had a ship, the Endeavour, and they exported a similar variety of rich goods. But apart from Robert's investment in the South Sea Trading Company, this generation of the Lawsons weren't involved in trading enslaved people, but they would have been aware of it. They could not have been. And they were certainly trading in goods produced by enslaved people. But in the time of John's children and grandchildren, the product that had originally created their family's wealth, sugar, became a focus for the growing movement which aimed to end slavery. The truth is that the sweetness of sugar, shall we say, hid the violence of its production. The Caribbean plantations were absolutely infamous for the high rate of mortality and deficiencies in diet, shelter and clothing of the people that were working on the plantations. They were brutal conditions, if we're really honest. And tropical diseases contributed to the death toll as well. So on the sugar plantations, death toll was about 50% higher than on the coffee plantations, for example. It was really dreadful. And the abolitionist movement, when it got going, one of their most successful campaigns was to encourage British people, especially women, not to buy or use goods produced by people who were enslaved in the West Indies, particularly sugar. It's said that about 300,000 people in Britain boycotted sugar and signed petitions and sales dropped dramatically around the country. And it was the nonconformist churches, like we Quakers, who were active in promoting the boycott of sugar and other slave-produced goods as well. About 100 petitions were presented to Parliament at this time. People like William Wilberforce, he was able to say, look, there's a huge number of people in the country that believe in abolition. So he could confidently assert 
an argument that reflected a national concern rather than his personal concern. And so we get a stage where abolition then becomes, through the sugar boycott, a sort of election issue and pressures being put on people standing for parliament to state their position. And it's quite interesting looking at to the Rawlingson family, Abraham Rawlingson, who had been the MP for Lancaster, absolutely opposed to the sugar boycott, pro-enslaving, opposed to abolition. In his letter book in 1792, he writes, The people in England want to lower the price of sugar and yet continue presenting petitions from all quarters to Parliament to procure the abolition of the slave trade. Many have left off the use of sugar for the purpose of putting a stop to the slave trade. If the custom became prevalent of eating and using nothing that had been touched by slaves, we may soon expect to see people in the state of their first nature, naked in the field, feeding like Nebuchadnezzar upon grass. What wonders their philanthropy or enthusiasm will produce is unknown. To finish our story, Anne told us about one last generation of the Lawson family, someone who helped to build a brand new community at the mouth of the River Loon, although not one that proved very profitable for himself. Robert Lawson is John's grandson. He's the son of Joshua. Robert Lawson marries Mercy Moss. She was, in fact, the daughter of the gentleman we've just been talking about, the hosier Isaac Moss from Manchester. And Robert developed the port of Sunderland Point as a dock and as an outpost of the port of Lancaster. And it's claimed, actually, that the first bale of cotton for the Lancashire cotton industry landed there. There's no proof, but that's claimed. Um, so we find Robert building this port, and apparently the, the merchants of Lancaster would gather to Sunderland Hall out on the point and watch for the ships coming in. He was actually declared bankrupt in 1728, but he wasn't disowned by friends, which is really unusual, because Quakers are entreated not to run into debt beyond what they were able to pay and still are. And William Stout provides us a really interesting description that gives us a, a different picture of the picture that's been put out about why Robert Lawson failed in business. It's said that it failed because Glass and Dock was being built. Now, William Stout writes in his book really interestingly. In the fourth month of this year, 1728, Robert Lawson of Sunderland Point failed in his credit. Who had done as much in merchandise here as all the rest? and had good success in trade, but employed the profit in superfluity of buying land at great prices and building chargeable and unnecessary houses, barns, gardens and other fancies, and costly furniture. So he overshot himself, and a commission of bankrupt got up against him. And as he took up great sums from the collectors of the customs, land tax, the same was first paid. His debts were about £14,000 having a value today of two million seventy-seven thousand and a half, of which about 14 shillings in the pound was paid. But it was supposed that he had so much as he would have been able to pay it all, if it could have done, without charges, and if he'd not been so extravagant in purchasing buildings and other superfluities, he might be worth three or four thousand, which is over half a million in 2023. So... We're told by William that Robert Lawson was profligate, really. And that's why he became bankrupt. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of 100 Years, 100 Objects. There's lots more episodes to listen to where we discuss everything from archaeology to astronomy.